0: Welcome to All Else Equal, a podcast that connects Notre Dame undergrads with faculty expertise. Today's question comes from Adam Coulomb. Adam's
1: wondering about what a lot of us are wondering about right now. What the heck is going on with Notre Dame going forward with this semester?
2: Hey Forrest and Jason, this is Adam Coulomb speaking. I'm a 2019 grad and my brother is actually an assistant rector in Siegfried Family Hall this year. Uh, after helping my brother moved in, I kind of stayed up to date on the news regarding Notre Dame's cautious reopening, and after the few weeks of classes, it seemed like y'all shut down uh, pretty quickly. So I was wondering, is this regarded as like an effective health strategy for the school? Is this the right decision, the wrong decision? What do y'all think? Let me know when you get the chance. Take care.
0: I really like this question from Adam, actually, and I think it's obviously an important topic. Um, I'm thinking let's talk to Chris Cronin. Chris is an assistant professor of economics specializing in health economics. He's currently doing work on the COVID-19 crisis cited recently in The New York Times, and he's looking at the impact of government mandates on stay-at-home behavior. Great. Let's see what he thinks about how Notre Dame is doing.
1: Hey Chris how's it going? Good. Uh, We ultimately want to talk about the current situation in Notre Dame and the effectiveness of various policies on our ability to have classes in person. Before we do that, i want to first ask you about your research related to federal, state, local mandates on behavior during this crisis. So obviously the data is still fresh but what does early research suggest about individuals behavior when the virus hit? Were government
2: regulations a nudge in the right direction? Yeah, so the paper shows that government regulations were just that. They were, they were just a nudge in the right direction. And so to be clear, like the data that we analyze, it's not just that the virus is still young. It's that we were looking at a very early period. Um, so just like you should think March, April, May. And this was a time when like the virus was really new for folks. People were, were scared of it. And so as a result, there was a lot of like precautionary behavior that people were engaging in independent of government regulation, which is essentially what we show with the paper. Um, so I'll give you kind of our biggest, our, our three big results set in that context. Um, so first, when, when we looked just a, at mobility or foot, foot traffic data, just in a time series, just, just looking over time, what, uh, you know, when did the drop in foot traffic occur? And what we found was that kind of across the entire country um, there was one week where the bottom really fell out in terms of mobility, and that was kind of the first indication that like maybe these policies weren't doing so much because the policies were a lot more spread out. And sure enough, like when we kind of went to a, a, a complete econometric model that accounted for all of these different uh, regulatory policies that state and local governments were passing, um, we found that they didn't have a ton of bite. So I'll give you a couple concrete results. Um, first for non-essential retailers. So think places like restaurants and hotels and entertainment venues. Um, the total decline in foot traffic due to COVID was about 65% on average, but only about a quarter of that was due to uh, government restrictions on mobility. So really not, not a ton. And I just um, ask a, a dumb question first. Mm-hmm. Uh, like how did you track people? Did you have like drones flying around like with cameras? No, that's exactly right. We got a bunch of drones and we had them follow people around. <laughs> right. And yeah, uh, no, this is like, you know, anytime your cell phone asks you, do you want to turn on location services? That's what, that, that's where these data come from. So there's a bunch of companies that then buy up these data from various apps. Um, and so we, we used one of those companies. Okay. So um, equally creepy. That's good. Equally creepy. Yeah. Okay. But technically you signed up for it. So yeah, so that's the data we're using. It it. In the data, you can see like how many pings, how many hits are there at certain retailers, and then we categorize those into different classes. Um, so I, I already, you know, said for, for non-essential retail, uh, you know, this, these policies didn't have a huge effect. For essential retailers, um, so think like pharmacies, grocery stores, big box stores like uh, like Walmart and Target. Um, the total decline in foot traffic was low. Was less, so it was a thirty-five percent decline. But about half of that was explained by these these kind of restrictions on mobility.
0: So, so can I, can I ask a kind of a, a follow up question? You keep talking about that individuals are making these own behavioral choices on their own, but then there's also these government mandated you know nudges to to get people to stay at home. How can you tell the effect or the impact of any individual mandate
2: yeah so so that's a good question so um so as i already alluded to like the drop in mobility kind of started in one week and that created like this downward trend over time in mobility so you know the the best way to understand the model then is to kind of is to think about comparing a couple counties. Because ultimately what we use to identify the effect of policies uh, is we use kind of regional or geographic variation in the timing of these policies. So the thought experiment is the following. Um, Let's say that you have two counties. In one of those counties, they pass some policy on say March 25th. And And then in the other county, they just never pass a policy. They never pass that particular policy. You can imagine for both of those counties measuring mobility in that county a week before and a week after March 25th. And there's essentially like you can find one of two things like either it's the case that the decline in mobility in those two counties is exactly the same. And if that's what we find, then it means that the policy really didn't do anything. It's just that there was this big overall national trend, not downward trend in mobility. The other thing that, that you could find uh, is you can find that the decrease in mobility was larger in the county that had a policy. And so you can think then the county with no policy, that kind of picks up the downward trend. In the county with a policy, the effect of the policy is like the total effect minus that, that downward trend. So you kind of take the difference between those two declines to figure out the, the effect of the policy. So that, like that's the simple thought experiment. Like when I talk about having a model all the model does is it allows us to make kind of like thousands and thousands of those comparisons on like, you know, 100 different days.
0: And so you, you choose counties because you think that they have very similar characteristics, right? Two counties close to each other. They have very similar kind of socioeconomic right. demographics, characteristics, things like that.
2: That's right. And, and actually, like a lot of the policies that had the most teeth, were at the county level. And so the, the way that these re- regulations really rolled out is like big cities would pass or big counties that had big metropolitan, uh, you know, uh, area, not within them, but had had populated uh, cities within them, they passed these policies first, and then states would come along and pass them later. And so yeah, kind of the perfect thought experiment is to say, like, all right, we're going to consider, you know, Chicago, and we're going to compare Uh, mobility in Chicago to kind of the suburbs where Chicago had a policy and the suburbs didn't have one. All
1: right. So I'll be really interested to see what's going to happen with this as you're able to kind of think about as like new data comes in uh, what the impacts of these different things are. But um, I think what's kind of most on people's mind right now is like what's going on at Notre Dame. So I really, now that we've got a health economist with us, we really want to kind of drill you on this. So I'm looking at the dashboard right now, and we're filming this on August 21st, and we've got 23 positive cases yesterday out of 256 daily total tests. And so like the the curve on the dashboard is bending a little bit. Like how should we think about what's going on right now?
2: Uh, How should we think about what's going on?
1: Um, You know, I'm struggling. Let, let Let me rephrase that. So suppose Notre Dame was a restaurant. Okay, and if you're looking at like the the grade in the window, like A B C D E F, like would you want to eat at Notre Dame right now?
2: <laughs> what I want to eat at Notre Dame right now. Um. All right. So if I had to, if I had to give Notre Dame a grade, I'll I'll go with a with a B, but that's like a modern B that takes grade that, that like is in, that's subject to grade inflation. So like 20 years ago, it probably would have been a C. All right. So let's, let's like start with what Notre Dame did well, you know, they did 8am to 8pm really well, right? Like if Notre Dame had the ability to hit a button and every student immediately ended up in their dorm room asleep at 8pm and they stayed there until 8am then really like everything else is, is mostly good. Right? So the, the classrooms are great. I mean, we have talked off air about how comfortable we feel in the classroom, given the spacing, given that everyone has masks on. There was a lot of thought about signage on campus and you're constantly reminded uh, to be wearing your mask and to keep distance from people. And for the most part, like folks are abiding by it. You know, kind of the obvious criticisms are, you know, Notre Dame has struggled to control the thing that's the most difficult to control which is student behaviors kind of after hours for that, you know, think about how that affects the grade. That's like, all right, you struggled with the hardest thing that lowers your grade a little bit, you, but you might still be in a territory. What really kind of like drops the grade is the thing that, you know, as soon as father Jenkins started talking about reopening, you know, I, I think we all just assumed like, well, you're going to be testing everybody a couple times a week. Right. Like that was like the, the everybody foresaw that like, You need to be testing everyone. This is a virus that people get it, and they don't know they have it, and then they pass it along because they're not symptomatic. And so kind of the the real puzzler right now and the reason for a lower grade is like, why is testing been such an issue? And why was it so low to start with? So do you think
1: this 99.7% statistic kind of gave us a false
2: sense of security? Yeah, I mean... Let's let's start by saying, like, let's say Notre Dame didn't even publish that, right? Let's say that they didn't publish it. And I were to just think, like, would you expect there to be more positive cases two weeks before classes start or by the end of the first week? And I mean, like, we all went to college. Your last two weeks of summer are, like, pretty mild. You hang out with a few buddies from high school. You're kind of getting geared up and ready to go back to campus. And then all of a sudden, you get to campus and nobody has any assignments yet. Nobody has exams yet. Like, that first week tends to be kind of wild. So, like, independent of announcing the 99.7, like, I would expect more cases once we got here. Okay, so that aside, yes, I think that publicizing the 99.7% COVID-free gave a false sense of security. It it helped students justify getting together because they felt like, well, nobody has it. But at the same time, like, we know some of the issues that exist with the current state of testing, we, at my understanding of the COVID test is that it gives very few false positives and that the false negative rate is actually quite high. And what that, so like, we can dig in a little bit to what that means. So like, yeah, false can, positive. Chris,
0: yeah what is, what is the difference really between a false negative and a false positive?
2: Right, so a false positive would say like, you go get the test and they hand you a piece of paper that says you have COVID. That's a pretty rare occurrence. What's much more common is for you to do the test and for it to come back that you're negative when you're actually positive. And the reason, and I think I haven't had it, I I haven't had the nasal test, but folks who have, my wife has had the nasal test. And people will tell you, like, it's uncomfortable. They really have to get the swab up there. And so it's definitely possible that um, that you have the test and they just don't get enough viral material on the swab. And then it ends up that, um, that it comes back negative. And so like that 99.7 statistic is like, was probably a too optimistic number.
0: So it seems like these false positives or false negatives could be kind of a big deal when students are coming back and they believe they're, they believe they're COVID-free,
2: right? And I mean, um, sure, like it, they're they're a huge problem. And like I, it's actually astounding when you when you go and look and try to find out like how common these false negatives are. So I, I was looking before this interview, and there's a ton of different estimates from different studies. But like if you just kind of picked kind of an average of those studies it's probably about 20% of the tests that come back negative are incorrect and the person's actually COVID positive. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an issue with testing.
0: That's so much more than I would have thought.
1: So it sounds like false positives actually aren't that big of a deal, right? In the, in, in this context,
2: like suppose we give students like a bunch of false positives, right? So generally speaking, like if you have, if you have like a, if you have an illness that's like a communicable disease, false positives aren't the big problem, right? Because a false positive just means that like you got to go sit in your room for two weeks and that's lousy for the person that has to do it. But it basically is just forcing someone to be overly cautious when they don't really need to. False positives are much more problematic when you're doing things like cancer screening, right? And someone's going to go and have, uh, have a procedure done when they actually don't have a tumor, for example.
1: Absolutely. So could you maybe just like walk us through exactly the role that testing should be playing like how does testing help us kind of reduce the reproducibility of like what's going on right now
2: yeah so i mean like fighting this virus is really a game of probabilities you're you're absolutely not going to prevent every case so that's so it's not possible therefore it shouldn't be treated like it's the objective the objective has to be to find as many positive cases that you can. And when you find them, you pluck those individuals from the environment. And this is like, this this issue of testing is bigger than just Notre Dame, right? There, there were folks that very early on in the pandemic were saying that like the entire United States needs to be tested three times a week. And, and you know, to the critics who were saying that's very expensive, the response was like, listen, we gave out Three trillion dollars, or however much in stimulus, like it's not expensive relative to that if it lets us get back to 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 a normal way of living. But the reason, in particular, that testing so important with this particular uh, with this particular virus is because of the asymptomatic cases. So you know, lots of people are out and about, have the virus, don't know that they have it, and so they're infecting others and and, and don't even know that they're doing it. I say like, re- really, like. I, It's hard for me to conceive of how any strategy for preventing the spread could work if it's not utilizing tests of a large fraction of the population. Um, Right now what Notre Dame's doing uh, is they're waiting for people to show symptoms, then they're testing them. And, and that kind of doesn't get at the heart of the problem, which is that particularly for young people, there's just a lot of asymptomatic cases. And you're just not going to find them if you're waiting on them to get a, a red pass first.
0: It seems like you're already touching on this. And you've you know, talked about some strategies to you know, mitigate the spread of the disease. If you could walk back in time and think before Notre Dame announced in-person classes, Imagining Notre Dame at unlimited resources, what would you do differently?
2: Right. So, I mean, like, I, I feel a little uncomfortable doing it because we all know hindsight's twenty uh, twenty. I should also say employees that, like, of Notre Dame. I should also say that I'm like a lowly assistant professor. Like, I was <laughs> not in the room for these discussions. I am still not in the room for these discussions. So, I'm I'm playing like armchair quarterback here. That said. You know, I think one of the biggest issues so far is something that we all kind of like when we heard we were coming back to campus, we anticipated like, but what are you going to do about students going out on Thursday and Friday? Like we just, we, we all kind of knew that that was going to be an issue. So let's like start there. Okay. My impression is that we entered the semester with no real plan for preventing off-campus gatherings other than threats and so like what you know what could have been done about that well at a minimum if the strategy you're going to take is we're going to threaten people then heads have to roll and it has to happen early on so I mean going back the kind of the, the lowest cost policy that's only a slight deviation from what was done is like literally day one that students were on campus people should have been sent home. Like, as, There should have been an absolute zero tolerance policy for partying. And I still think that like, students aren't super scared of the consequences of what will happen if they're identified at a party without a mask on. Um, so that's kind of like the low cost approach. Now there are more concrete things that could have been done, and which, is, which are really steps toward creating an actual bubble And I'll admit myself, like when when plans were er, were being discussed early on, and it was the campus was being discussed as if it was going to be a bubble. Like I was super critical of that. I thought, like, there's you know, I'm gonna go home every day. I'm gonna see my kids every day. It's not a bubble if I'm bouncing in and out. But I will say, like, with the uh, precautions that are being taken, again, between eight and eight, staff going home, faculty going home, and coming back in, that doesn't strike me as that dangerous, if, if they were trying to maintain like a, a, a real bubble on campus. All right, so so with that, among the students, like what would an actual bubble look like? And I, I can think of like two big deviations from what's currently going on. One, the university could have said like, students who are living off campus, you're just gonna, you're not gonna come to class. Like you are going, if you you have a choice to live on campus or not, And if you choose to live off campus, then you're going to attend class virtually. Um, The justification being that like we just don't have any control at all over your behaviors. And so we're not going to put everybody else at risk for that. That actually isn't that crazy of a policy. There are plenty of universities that just literally don't let students live off campus. Like that is common at a lot of small colleges in particular. And so that, you know, that's part of it. The other part of it is like, okay, well, what do we do to prevent students who are currently on campus from going off and and engaging in irresponsible behavior? And actually, there's kind of a solution for that too, which is you can you can institute a curfew, which like actually like Jason, you and I were talking about that the other day, and when you first said it, like mm-hmm. I, I thought like, man, that would never work, and then like I stopped and I thought about it, and I was like, there are universities that have curfews, like that is not an unheard of thing. But if you make those two changes, then essentially what you do is you, you really, it seems like you would lower the probability of large off-campus parties having an impact on campus. Now it creates a whole other set of problems where like now you're trying to prevent parties on campus, you're gonna have some students that don't wanna come back for the semester at all because they don't wanna live on campus. So I'm not saying that like, there aren't any costs to that switch, but given the problems that we've seen so far, and let me be clear, given the fact that testing has been inadequate, those are two policies that like maybe in hindsight, would they would have been good ones to consider.
1: I do want to talk for a second about like what seems like a disconnect to me. You say like eight to eight, we're safe, right? The, the university has done a great job. Like, why are we not allowed to do the thing we are safe doing? Yeah. Which is like having in-person classes.
2: Yeah, no, I struggle with that one as well. I mean, at first, I kind of question the whole. So, I guess they can say there are no confirmed cases of in-class transfers. They can't say that there aren't any in. Uh, maybe there have been in-class transfers. Like, there's no way to guarantee that that hasn't taken place. It probably has. But I agree with you that like it it does, it does seem kind of strange that we can't have in-person class when class seems safe. Even to us, it's the professors, when we've talked offline, like we feel safe. Now that said, you know the university is an organization that has a reputation that they have to think about, right? Shutting down classes relative to other moves its a relatively low cost thing to do. The classroom is also something that they can control. They, it's really hard yeah, to control whether good, or not kids yeah. are going to parties, right? but the classroom they can control. There's also, there's just signaling value in it, right? If we have, you know, when you think about when Father Jenkins shut down classes, we had had, was it one really bad day or two? It was like they had publicized one really bad day and they had the information on the next really bad day. And so, but we all kind of knew it was coming. And so there's just kind of signaling value from the university to say like, you know, we're, we're doing what we can to address this. Now, there is also kind of a, I don't, I don't want to sound like cynical. It is the case that the most at-risk population at Notre Dame, given what we've seen of the virus so far, is not the students, right? It's older faculty members. It's staff members that are older, you know, that are above 60 years old. And by shutting down classes, like you, you, you do take a step toward protecting that most at-risk group.
1: I I do want to like give props to like everyone at the university who worked so hard for like all summer. Um, like an incredible, incredible amount of work has gone into getting us to where the point where we could even think about opening in person. Like the fact that like classrooms are so safe is like, or seem so safe is like a testament to like all the work that like people have done. Um, and I'm just like, You know, I think we're all kind of disappointed that like we've devolved into this point where like we had to like pivot so soon. It's a luxury, kind of like finger pointing at different people, whether it's off-campus people or like how the administration has handled things. Like this does kind of tie back to like this fundamental tension in public policy, where we kind of like think about like, well, when do we want like top-down policies, mandates, or whatever to to use them to solve a problem versus like expecting bottom-up solutions to to provide those sort of uh, responses to a problem assuming we get through this two-week hiatus like what can we expect moving forward
2: yeah so there was a there was an interesting article in the observer this morning that was written by students did you all see it i didn't no i so haven't I think, it, I think it was like the the editorial board put together an article and it was interesting like their tone they essentially adopted this tone of like we are willing to own up uh, for the part of this issue that that's our fault. Namely, like not all students, but some fraction of students haven't been safe after hours. But then they went on to say like, at the same time, you know, Notre Dame needs to fess up to their, their role in this as well. And specifically they, they were angry about the lack of testing. And so like, kind of where do I see this, you know, how do I see this evolving as we move forward? You know, if the past four days are any indication of how things are going to look moving forward, it seems like there's going to be a whole lot more testing. And I think that that would be a great thing. I think everyone is hoping for a whole lot more testing. And I think even today they announced that randomized testing was starting today, which, you know, is a great step in the right direction. So that's, you know, I'm hoping that that that's happened. At the same time, like, I would have thought when we first got to campus that there would have been randomized widespread testing. And there wasn't which suggests that, like, there's some constraint to doing it, and I just don't know what it is. So, like, it could be the case that, like, at this particularly, you know, emotional time, and at a time when there are a lot of positive cases, that Notre Dame's spending whatever capital they need to spend in order to test a lot, and maybe that'll go away. I don't don't have any idea. But there are a couple indications to suggest that, like, the testing environment's going to be different. As for students, like, I, I feel like that's the other, you know, the, we keep talking about there being two parts of this. There's the testing part, and then there's the student behavior part. And, like, I don't know. I, I don't so, know. <laughs> I, I don't know how it's going to change. I do think that there have been additional threats made by the university. You know, Father Jenkins was, was clear. I think we got another uh, another email from from Aaron, uh, Aaron Hoffman-Harding. Yeah that was, that, you know, was again saying, like, if you are found to be engaging in irresponsible behavior, you know, you, you could face these consequences. And until students, like, are facing those consequences and other students know that they're facing those consequences, it's hard for me to imagine that, like, the small percentage of misbehaving students are going to behave any differently.
1: We should take this moment just to make empty threats towards students <laughs> that are engaging in risky behavior. That's
2: right. That's yeah. right. I mean, like, it will be bad if you do that. That's right. It's, it's, that's that's got to stop. Like that That actually, that, and, and the students, the large majority of students who are acting I know responsibly, they want that to stop. Yeah. Like they want to see some heads roll. So,
0: so I got one question for you. If students are interested in learning more about the health policy research coming out about COVID-19, uh, where do you suggest they go and take a look?
2: The National Bureau of Economic Research, which is kind of like an association of economists, publishes working papers, and they have done a really nice job of organizing all in working papers on COVID, and they categorize them by type. So if you're interested in COVID papers written by economists, that's a great place to go, to, to go and look.
0: Chris, thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here, Chris.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Talk to you guys soon.
1: Well, Jason, would you eat
0: at a restaurant that had a bee in the window? Ah, uh, that's a great question. Would you eat at a restaurant that had a bee in the window? Let me let me say this. I do think over time, what has their rating been? Have they been bees consistently? Or is this a transitory bee? Or what is the relationship to this bee uh, in this window to all the other windows I'm looking at right now? I don't know. I kind of like the libertarian argument that, like, well, this restaurant wouldn't exist if it was serving low-quality food or something like that. There's no $20 bill on the, on the ground. That's right. Markets will make sure that this restaurant is working or not. Perfect. Well, that wraps up this episode, folks. If you'd like to learn more about Professor Cronin's recent research, we're going to post a link to a podcast he did with NPR and link a bunch of the resources in the description portion of this podcast. Thanks for listening. If you want to ask a question for an episode of All Else Equal, send us an email at allelsequalpodcast at gmail.com.